Hello, welcome to CityWire's Funds Fanatics show. I'm Jeremy Gordon, Assistant Editor of Funds Insider here at CityWire, and I'm excited to be presenting this podcast for the first time today, particularly so because I'm joined by Fund Manager Keith Ashworth-Lord. Keith manages Sanford Deland's UK Buffettology Fund, a strategy modelled on the principles of legendary investor Warren Buffett, but focusing on UK shares. The fund hit its 10-year anniversary in late March and had returned 277% to investors over that decade. That was one of the best performances in its UK all-company sector, where the average return was 94%. But perhaps even better, the fund also beat the 256% gain a UK investor would have got from owning Berkshire Hathaway stock over those last 10 years. In other words, Keith has been beating Buffett at his own game. Keith, welcome. Um, now to start, congratulations on uh, UK Buffettology's 10th anniversary. What, what, what do you think has been the secret to your success running the fund so far? I think it's the methodology that we use, business perspective investing. Um, Mm -hmm. All we ever do is look at companies, markets, companies' position within markets. That's what we drill down into. We don't concern ourselves with all the extraneous noise of where stock markets might be going or where interest rates might be going, uh, trying to second-guess things. We devote our entire life, investment life, to drilling down into companies, economic analysis, financial analysis. Okay. And uh, can, you, can you tell me a bit more about how you, how you develop that philosophy and I suppose what, why it works? Oh, it, it's purely a take on what Benjamin Graham and Warren Buffett have done over the years. Um, I mean, basically, we're looking for businesses that have an economic moat, So businesses with pricing power, with growth potential in their markets, or perhaps their markets have got growth potential. And uh, we look for a variety of telltale signs. Uh, So we look at growth, we look at margins, operating margins, we look at return on capital, return on equity, cash conversion, um, strength of of finances, the balance sheet. Do do the uh, managers act with the eyes of an owner or do they act like expensive management consultants or worse still empire builders? So we're, we're really <laughs> looking at a whole gamut of, of both financial and, and human characteristics about a business uh, that tell us that this business might have an economic moat. Okay. And, and this is still what, is this still what Warren Buffett does himself today, say buying and holding a a company like Coca-Cola for three decades plus, and then you, you put your own kind of spin on, on what on those kinds of ideas. Yeah, I mean, well, you know, let's say at the outset, you know, he's the sorcerer and I'm the apprentice. He's been doing this for <laughs> years, um, whereas I've only been doing it for 35 years. Well, actually, this methodology I've been doing for 25 years, first 10 years were lost. Um, but yeah, it's it's that whole long-term buy and hold philosophy that once you've got a really great business, there are so few of them about that you you really should just stay with it through thick and thin and only sell if something material changes, either the business, you know, something in the business could be economic, could be market, could be regulation, could be management, could be almost anything, but something fundamental has changed. Or the alternative is, you know, you've made a mistake and you've got into something that isn't what you thought it was going to be. You know, those are the only reasons we yes. would sell. Otherwise, we want to hold for 10, 20 years. OK. And you, you told me once when we, we spoke before that uh, a company called Games Workshop 
uh, was a 30 bagger for you. In other words, it's gone up 30 times since you bought it. And in fact, it's still your biggest holding today. Can, can you explain to me a bit about how Games Workshop is an example of, of that philosophy in action? Yeah, um, we, we bought it We bought it in April 2011, right when the fund started, and we paid 373 pence at the off. And as you know now, they're, they're over £100 a share. Um, that's a business that has definitely got an economic moat, and that moat comes from buying a piece of its customer's mind. Um, the, the people <laughs> who play this game, this the, the hobby with these miniatures and, and all the gaming books and scenery and everything, they're absolute fanatics, and they will spend their last dime on on that hobby. Uh, it, it really is a case of, of you know fanaticism uh, writ large. So it's a, it's a consumer business. Uh, but it's one where the, the 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 consumers are really locked into the whole uh, whole world of Warhammer, a really great strong franchise. Nobody else is doing that. You know, they've they've got intellectual property here, uh, and it's just it's a fantastic business. And the really interesting thing was, after five years of ownership, the shares were still only at five pounds. Remember, it was three seventy three I paid. And we were getting implored by by investors, what are you doing sticking around in this business? You know, it, it's no good. Go and get into something else that's moving. And all the time, I just sort of sniggered and thought, look, I tell you, my operating ratios and my financial ratios are telling me that this company is executing on everything it said it would. And one day, it, it, the market will realise. What then helped even more was we had the referendum and we had Sterling uh, take a tanking and 75% of Games Workshop sales are, are overseas and yet all of its manufacturers is at Lenton in Nottingham. So it had a wonderful currency factor. It also got a new manager in Kevin Roundtree uh, who'd taken over from Tom Kirby and Kevin's proved to be very, very sassy. He's got them involved with social media. He's introduced new games that have gone down really well with the gamers. And the whole thing has just snowballed. It's been a great trip. OK, that, 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 that's very interesting, Keith. Thanks. I, I, I'm curious. So you, you, you're talking about Warhammer, which is Game, Games Workshop's core business, this, uh, this kind of leisure pursuit where people collect, collect these figurines and then kind of pit, the, pit these armies against each other in battle. Um, I'm guessing, to be honest, you don't play Warhammer yourself. When, when, when you're trying to um, go about understanding businesses, is, is that sometimes a, a challenge um, that you're, you're a bit far removed from, from what they do? No, not in this case. I think it was probably an advantage. I think if I'd been a gamer, I might have had stars in my eyes about it, whereas I was actually I was <laughs> one step back from all that. Uh, but it, 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 it was just so obvious that... When you wander around the place, the people who work there, they're so enthusiastic about what they do. You know, they really, they're, they're hooked into it. The gamers themselves are hooked into it. And, you know, when, when you go around somewhere, when you kick the tires on a business and you encounter people with such enthusiasm for the job that they're doing, it's, it, you want to bottle it. It's a wonderful feeling. And the only other one which is remotely like that, in my experience, has been the, the business that's actually our third best returner, and that's Focusrite, the, the music products game. Again, f fantastically enthusiastic employees and people using the products really like the product. So, you know, nice combination to have. Okay. 
And so you, you talked about buying buying Games Workshop when it was around £3.70 and then several years later still languishing, so to speak, at £5 and people saying, what are you, what are you still doing in this company? And now, now, it, now it's absolutely rocketed. And I expect the questions have flipped round and many times people are saying, why, why, why aren't you taking profits on, on this holding that's done so well? Can, can you talk to me a bit more about your your philosophy on taking profits and whether that's the right thing to do often. Yeah, I go back to what I said earlier. There's, there's only really two good reasons for selling a, a, a holding. One is that you've got it wrong, and two is that something's changed. I mean, in the came in the case of, of Games Workshop, the thing that strikes me is it's by no means penetrated all the world. You know, there's a lot more to go for, and they've just spent two or three years investing in both manufacturing and distribution facilities down at Lenton uh, for this next phase of growth. Uh, the other thing they're doing, which is absolutely right, is they're exploiting their IPR. So the royalty income uh, is, is rocketing and royalty income is wonderful. I mean, there's no cost attached to it. It's pure profit. And I just so this is in things like computer games, is it? Yes. Yeah, that sort of thing. Um, and I, I just think there's, there's an awful lot more to go for. Um, the the rise in the share price has been a mixture of both earnings expansion and also PER expansion. So it's not been one or the other. It's been a nice combination of both. Uh, just I just think there's an awful lot more to go for. Why would you sell a business that's on a roll? Okay, so it's it's very far from being a sort of niche offering that that's filled its niche. Absolutely right. I don't think it's filled its niche at all. So much more to go for. Uh, and, you know, uh, the other point is a lot of it is uh, is, is sold through uh, third-party stores, you know, through retail. Uh, more than 45% is, is, is retail through through other distributors, other stores. And if they were to get that business in-house, there's additional margin there to capture as well. Right. OK. Um, some, th- thanks, Keith. Something I was definitely keen to ask about is whether you think, you know, Games Workshop is a kind of once-in-a-decade company or whether there are other names in the portfolio that you think could do that well. You, you mentioned Focus, right? Can, can you talk to me a bit more about that business and what, what the strength of its economic motive? Yeah, Focus, right, is an audio products business, and it was originally two distinct, uh, two, two distinct products. One was sort of synthesizer-type products under the Novation banner. Uh, everything from these, these uh, pads that you, you tap on to make music right up to sort of smaller synthesizers. And the other side of the business was consoles, digital, uh, for mixing. Not not really, I believe they do go into Abbey Road, but not really big studio oriented. It's mainly sort of mid-sized studios and, and, and small uh, independent music makers, people. And of, the, of that business, they've now built up uh, with a couple of acquisitions, Adam and Martin Audio, uh, they've started to add products to it. And most recently, they they, uh, they bought a business in the United States, which is high-end synthesizers. So it really is, it, it's for people who want to make music or who want to record it in studios. And if you ask anybody who uses the product what they like about it, they'll say it's not the best on the market, but it's 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 the best in terms of the price uh, levels that they're pitched at. So, you know, uh, the, the, the people who are using the product really like it. And as I say, it, it's it's a business where the managers, you know, Phil Dudridge has got over 30 percent. He's the founder and chief executive of it. Um, the, the, the managers have, have all got big stakes in the business. So we, we like that. Um, and, and they're all 
dyed in the wool music industry people. You know, Tim Carroll's the CEO. I think I said Dudridge was the CEO. He's actually the chairman. Um, and, and Tim Carroll's steeped in it. Um, these are people who really know their industry backwards and uh, they, they know how to reach out and, and, uh, and, and capture their customers. It's a great little business. And we bought it for the first time. I think it was an IPO in 2014. We bought it for the first time in 2018, early on 2018. And already it's a three-bagger getting on for a four-bagger for us. Okay. That, 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 that's very interesting. What, one thing on Focusrite. So I, I believe that uh, your, your fund uh, has got about a 5% position in it. And Focusrite isn't, isn't a particularly big company. My rather amateurish arithmetic uh, calculated that you, you might own about 10% of the shares in, in the Buffettology fund alone. Is that, is that a problem at all? Is, is that something people should worry about ever when you've got big stakes in the underlying company? I don't think so. I mean, you know, if, if, you, if you've got a business that you really do believe in, then you really ought to commit capital to it. Where you'll go wrong is by spreading your capital out over a whole load of things that you don't know as well as, 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 as the big ones in there. Uh, we've got a number of sort of 10, 15% holdings, Quartix, we own 18% of, for example. Um, as far as we're concerned, it's, it's, it's doing, it's a, it's, it's a focus investing approach. Uh, and, and that's what we want to do. We want to have a small portfolio of, you know, 30, 35 companies that we really think we know an awful lot about and hopefully know more about than, than most other people do. Uh, we think if you're going beyond that, instead of having a portfolio, you, you're going to end up with a zoo and you're not going to know those businesses anything like as well as you should do. So it's what Buffett says, you know, if you're going to put, if you're going to put your eggs, a few eggs in the basket, make sure you watch the basket. Uh, and that's what we try to do. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I, I think I don't want to ask too lead, leading a question, but given it's the kind of 10th anniversary of the fund, I was wondering when you started in the UK, uh, investing in UK shares with this kind of approach. Did you feel like you wanted to do something very different to the other options which were out there? Yeah, I mean, Sir John Templeton said, if if you if you want different results, you've got to do different things, and that's absolutely right. Um, there are people out there. There's a coterie of fund managers who are doing very similar things to to what I'm doing. You know, I mean, think Nick Train or think Terry Smith. Um, you know, who yeah. really, really sort of nailed onto a very robust investment philosophy. Uh, but there's an awful lot out there who, you know, perhaps are, are not so, not so focused as we are. I mean, I think one of the things that enables us to do that, quite frankly, is the fact that we own our own management companies. We're not employees of somebody else's company. We don't work for Schroders or something like that. And it gives, you, yeah. it gives you that you don't have quite that career risk of doing something different that you would if you were working for a big house. So I think that's that's one of the features of, of why a certain group of individuals like we are uh, all are able to invest the way we are. But, yeah, I mean, this this whole philosophy, you know, it started with me in mid 1990s when I started going over to Omaha and I started reading a lot. Uh, I'd, I'd latched on to Buffett and Munger and Philip Fisher uh, and yeah. it, it was it was that I'd almost discovered it's like Damascian conversion. You know, I, I sort of came across a philosophy that I felt very, very, very comfortable with. Um, and suddenly all that you know, previous 10 years of, of, of going mad trading and all this sort of thing, it, it just went clean out the window. And once you've crossed that particular line, you never go back. 
Yeah. So you, you, you've said you've been over to Omaha a few times. I guess that's for the, the legendary Berkshire Hathaway a- annual meetings. Can you, can you tell us a bit about that that experience? And, and well, did, did you meet Warren Buffett himself? Yeah, the very first time we went out there, my, my then business colleague, a chap called Jeremy Otten, he and I ran a publication called Analyst, an investment research publication. And we were very, very fortunate in that Warren and Charlie gave us about a quarter of an hour of their time um, in, in, it was actually in Susan Jakes's office, the CEO of Borshines. Um, so, yeah, we, mm. we met them. We, we'd been to press conferences and things, but that first meeting was was really quite something, you know, especially when you just got yeah. on these tram tracks. And we got also, we got <laughs> to know the whole group of people out there, you know, the, who collectively are known as the Buffettologists, you know, Lowenstein, Kilpatrick, uh, Cunningham, uh, Dave Clark and Mary Buffett, who, of course, licenses the trademark Buffettology. Um, yeah, it's great. Yes. I mean, it, you know, you, you go out there to cleanse the soul. <laughs> <laughs> Cleansing the soul. Crikey. What I mean, you talked about that that first meeting. What what, what was the kind of particularly memorable stuff from that? What what really stuck, stuck with oh, you there's, from there's that There's one thing that stuck in my mind and, and I've repeated ever since, and it was Charlie Munger in a, in a short part of that conversation. He said, he said, Keith, watch the incrementals like a hawk. We were talking about return on equity specifically at the time, but he was saying, he said, watch the incrementals, watch the delta, um, what's happened over the last year, two years, three years. So marginal returns on equity rather than average return on average equity uh he said because quite often the marginal will tell you if something's going right or wrong long before it's reflected in the average so he said watch the incrementals like a hawk and i've done that ever since so i suppose that that's all about knowing the businesses you're investing in really well and what watching very closely for these leading indicators of where performance is improving or, or slipping is that right? Correct. I mean, the, the the models that I use, in a lot of cases, you know, Games Workshop, my model starts in 1994, and I've got all the financial information. But what we've put together is not just the P&L balance sheet um, cash flow data. We've put together a whole sheaf of about 150 key ratios that are, are derived off those sort of value drivers of the business. Um, that's the proprietary bit, actually, of what Sanford Deland do. Uh, and yeah. dependent upon certain businesses, certain of those ratios will be more important in the context of any particular business. But that's what we watch like a hawk. And there's a lot of delta goes on in that. Interrogating the delta is what I call it. Looking at subtle changes and, and what it might mean. And it's, it's a great model to have because it actually gives you the questions that you need to ask of the managers when you meet them. Um, it, it, it's terrific. I remember once... Um, Nathan Imlach, who was the finance director of Mattioli Woods, we were having the meeting and he said to me, where are you getting these questions from? You know, I, was like, I don't know whether he thought I had a mole on the inside or something. And I said to him, I said, I'll show you. And I, I went around the other side of the table with the spreadsheet and the ratios. I said, that's what, that's why I asked you that question, pointing something out to him. And he said, I've never seen anything like that before. And I said, well, you won't have because this is what's been developed over many years. And then in his final conference, yeah. he, said, he said, can I have a copy? I said, no. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, that's very interesting. Must be yeah, a very a very compelling model. Um, I, I'm I'm curious, Keith, and do, do you still follow closely what what Buffett is up to today? 
Um, I think the answer is, is probably yes, given, uh, if I'm not mistaken, according to Morningstar data, that the fund actually has a small p- or a position in Berkshire Hathaway. Is that right? It does indeed. We, we have two US shares in the fund. Uh, the two businesses are Berkshire Hathaway, surprise, surprise. And the other one is Rollins, which is the uh, second largest pest control business in the United States. Uh, okay. And, and uh, you know, th- this this philosophy, this methodology we use, it crosses borders. That's why it, it's made for a global fund as well as a UK fund. But it's just that I know the UK better than I know. Well, I know the US quite well because I live over there part of the time. But uh, Oh, right. Yeah, we, 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 uh, we have a home in Florida. Uh, we've had it for many years now. We try to spend about three or four months over there. That's another cleansing the soul operation, by the way. The joke is, I'm sure. Yeah. The joke is, whenever I go over to Florida, the fund always performs better. <laughs> uh, e- excellent. And so, oh, I suppose it's fair to say maybe that Berkshire Hathaway's performance returns haven't been quite as strong uh, over the last decade as previously. Uh, Buffett doesn't really like tech. He, he's he's backed companies in struggling sectors like back banks and airlines. Do, do you think he's gone off the boil at all? No, I don't. I think what it is, I think the, it's the size of the business now. Um, it, it, it's a huge business. And if he were running a fund that was the size of my fund at 1.6 billion uh, UK, uh, he'd be doing an yeah. awful lot better than he would with Berkshire Hathaway. And I don't think your intro where, where you, you bigged me up, up as having beaten him on performance. I suspect if he were running a fund same size as mine, you know, I'd be trailing on his coattails. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't think he's lost it. I, I tell you what, I wish I had a tenner for every time people have asked that question, has, has he lost Oh really? Yeah, uh, I see. I don't think he has. And I mean, in terms of the, in terms of the tech, you know, the, He's got he's got Todd Combs and Ted Wechsler now who's helping him on the investment management side, you know, investing the float. And uh, I think clearly their influence can be seen in in some of the recent things, the Apple, uh, the Apple stakes, for example. Um, yeah. So he, he, he's, he's got some interesting people around him. Yeah. Well, I'm sure if Warren Buffett ever does launch a uh, a UK equity fund, there will certainly be. Uh, a lot of interest, uh, let, 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 let's say. Um, what, one, one other thing uh, I'd like to clear up about your, your investment philosophy, if, that, if that's right, Keith. Um, again, kind of referring back to Buffett. Uh, at one time, you know, Warren Buffett was considered a legendary value investor. Um, but looking at your fund, it seems like it's much more about growth. Can you, can you kind of explain that? Is there, is there a, any contradiction there or, or, or kind of what, what, what should we take from that? Right. At the outset, I would say I don't recognise those two imposters as growth or value. I really don't. I mean, okay. I mean value, value, I'm afraid, has a connotation of rubbish, trash. It's, it's cheap stuff and quite often it's cheap for a reason. So yeah. I mentioned earlier on that what we do is we, we look for businesses that have growth potential the markets have growth potential or they have growth potential in the market. So right at the top of the equation, we're looking for businesses that, that are in growing markets, um, which, which yes. have that potential. And after we've gone through our whole quality of business assessment and our economic and our financial analysis, only when we've really decided we want to invest, do we even think about valuation? And we're, we're fairly simple folk. Uh, we just we just try to work out how much cash do we think this business will give us from now till judgment day, discount it back at a fairly high hurdle, 
of 10% and then uh, compare what we get with what the market is asking us to pay. And if it, if it looks like a, a you know it's a, it's a fair valuation or even better still it, it's it's a, a cheap valuation relative to, to to what we for what we can buy uh, we will invest there and then. Conversely, if it looks somewhat overvalued in the market, we'll put it on a watch list and we'll just wait and we'll wait and we'll wait and we'll wait until either the market has a funk or something happens with the business and maybe the market takes a downer on the business. But obviously, we think it's. It's, it's solvable, whatever the problem the market's seeing is. And then we would invest. And, you know, there are examples of that. If you, if you think back to 2018, when the market, the final quarter, the market took a bit of a tanking, we loaded up on both Experian and London Stock Exchange at what now look like very, very good valuations. And they've been sat on the watch list, businesses we wanted to own, uh, but we just initially didn't have the opportunity. So that's where the value aspect comes in, i.e. We, yes. we want to pay. We, price is what you pay. Value is what you get. Uh, and we want to make sure that we, we, you know, we always get value for our money. Uh, because, again, you know, the price you pay determines the return you're going to get. So, so we think value and growth as, as just two ends of the same process, really, and not as, you know, as I called them earlier, imposters to be pitted one off against the other. Yes. And, uh, well, I suppose when you were outlining your philosophy at the top of the conversation and talking about uh, an economic moat and strong return on equity and those kind of qualities, I think reasonably people would say, well, the, these businesses are probably going to be expensive. But I, I suppose that's your that's your answer to that that kind of concern then, that you really are very patient about waiting for the right entry point. Absolutely right. And I mean, the other thing is just to mention, if you're discounting things back at 10%, that's a very high hurdle rate. So you are actually building a margin yep. of safety in by the discount rate you're using. Thank you, Keith. Um, now, the fund hasn't been quite as strong a performer since November's uh, coronavirus vaccine breakthroughs, uh, which, are, which have uh, ushered in what, what some might call a value rotation. Uh, but I, I think you've called it a dash for trash. Uh, and the fund's performance was was slightly negative in in the first quarter. Are are you, are you worried about this rotation to value and cyclical stuff? Not at all. I've seen it before, and it's usually measured in months rather than years. And then the quality the quality businesses pick up the baton and run with them. Uh, we're already starting to see that. You won't have seen the April figures yet, I, I suspect. But uh, uh, we did we did quite handsomely beat the market in April. And I think the reason for that is that. Over April and May, we've had about 20 of our companies reporting either results or trading statements with, with just one or two exceptions. They've been up to scratch or in several cases better than scratch, e.g. focus right. Um, and I think as the consequence of that is that we have seen uh, you know, a one-month rotation back to the sort of businesses that we like. I'm not, I'm not going to say it's yes. the end of the so-called value rotation. It might not be. Who knows? You know, that's the sort of thing I don't even worry about. But what, what I do know is I've seen this before. I've seen periods, uh, 2016, where we, we underperformed for several months and then we took off again. Uh, it's, it's what will happen. It's just, you know, it, it's sentiment driving the market. Um and all it does, if it means that the quality businesses, you can get them at a better valuation. And I'm very happy about a rotation to value. Uh, OK. And, and have, have there been some examples of you being able to buy quality businesses at, at better prices? 
Well, if, if I talk about the last few months, uh, yeah, there's, there's, there's been one or two that we've, we've, uh, we, we've added to the portfolio. Uh, businesses like TriFast, uh, which were down on its uppers. Uh, before the bid came, businesses like Scarpa, and that's been taken out at twice the price we were, we were buying stock at. Uh, even better, yeah. if we go back to this time last year, you know, when, when the whole, whole market had tanked, we were getting some fantastic opportunities among our, our leading companies. So, you know, Games Workshop picked up at just over £47, Focus right at £3.90. You know, these are two I've mentioned, obviously, a number of times on this call. But, yeah. Uh, yeah, so we, we, we've had some great opportunities to buy into, into what I think are quality businesses at prices that make business sense. Okay, thank thank you, Keith. Uh, it'd, it'd be good to talk some more about some of the other holdings in the portfolio. Um, the kind of low cost travel group Jet Two is one of your your biggest holdings. Um, I'm curious, can, can those kinds of cyclical companies really be examples of the the, the very strong, enduring franchises you, you look for? Yeah, well, first of all, I'd say twenty uh, uh, Jet Two is actually a twenty bagger for us since we first bought it back in 2011. Um, really? It's another big one, yeah. Why do we like it? I'll tell you why we like it. The people who run it are very customer conscious. If you look at the um, the, the, the reports, the, the, the people who've had money out with them, they've got their money back straight away, their rebates back straight away. Jet2's not sat on it. Um, it's, it's run by... Philip Mason, as, as you know, who owns a big slug of the equity. Uh, under him, he's got two really good managers in Gary Brown on the finance side and Steve Heapy on the CEO side. And this is a business that is not, it, it, it's at secondary and tertiary airports. So, you know, think Leeds, Bradford, uh, think Stansted, think Bristol, um, think Newcastle. And those those places have been pulled out of by the likes of, of, of Chewy and EasyJet and, and Ryanair. Uh, they've abandoned those, and, and Jet2 has got stronger at those, those secondary and tertiary airports. Then on top of that, they've had this wonderful attrition going on in the industry. You know, we saw Monarch go, we saw Thomas Cook go, and consequently Jet2's position strengthened as a result of that. And now we see Chewy Thompson in, in trouble uh, maybe going to retrench from the UK even more. So it's going to leave Jet2 really in a very, very sweet spot when we all start flying again and taking off. So we like the business, we like the managers, uh, and we like the way they treat their customers. Uh, and, and I think there's a, you know, there really is a, a franchise. Our chief analyst always travels Jet2, and he says it doesn't matter if him and his, his family with wife and two kids, he says they're quite yeah. happy to pay a lot more money to go with Jet2 than with any other rival airline because of the standard of service. So that's why we like it. It is, it is different from most of my businesses in the sense that it's quite capital intensive and most of my businesses are asset light. But yeah, yes. it's a business, of, again, I've known for donkey's years, you know, when it was Dark Group and uh, it, it had Fowler Welsh, of course, as part of the group in, in, in those days. So it's a business I've known for an awful long time and managers that I, I really respect. Okay, thank you. Lion Trust is another top 10 holding, close to 5% of the fund. I'm always curious when fund managers invest in other asset managers, I suppose. Uh, 
Lantos does have this big sustainable investing fund range. Is that an important part of the appeal there? No, you've just picked on another 20 bagger there. <laughs> another 20 bagger, oh dear. Uh, what do I like about it? I need to be more incisive, don't I? <laughs> what do I like about it? When, when I bought it for the first time, it, it was it was not long after uh, John Irons had taken over and working with Vinnie Abrol to turn it round. It had had a bit of trouble, uh, you know, in, in the sort of noughties. And what I liked about it was its funds were performing really well. You know, they were all top quartile over one year, three years, and in most cases, five years. There was nothing wrong with the, with, with the performance of the funds and indeed the way the senior managers were turning things around. Uh, but what really struck me was, you know, this, this is value. This is real value. It was at 0.75%. Enterprise value to assets under management, and the next cheapest was Bruin Dolphin at double that level. Uh, the median was about two point nine percent, and the high water mark had just passed when Franklin Templeton bought Rensburg for four point nine percent. It just looked absolutely dirt cheap, and the underlying business was in a transition phase and getting better, in my opinion. Uh, the other thing I've got to like about them, I, I know them a lot more now. Um, you know, we, we try and meet up every six months and, and go out for a bite to eat and just chew the chew the cud a bit. Uh, and the thing that I really like is the culture of the business. It's it's very similar to Sanford Deland um, in, in cultural terms. I also liked the economic advantage model. Uh, it's it's not a million miles away from business perspective investing. And now, as you rightly say, they, they've got the sustainable. Uh, range that that you know that sort of uh, augments the economic advantage uh, model. Um, where do we stand on that? We don't we don't put the ESG uh, horse in front of the car. We we do pay a lot of attention to ESG, particularly the G bit. I have to say, uh, it's, it's all part and parcel of business perspective investing because you're looking for businesses that are going to be around for 10, 20 years and. If you gouge your customers or you treat your, your suppliers badly or, or your employees badly, you ain't going to be around for long. Um, so we do have our checklist that we use. We don't shout from the rooftops about it. And we certainly don't badge our funds as being sustainable or ESG, but it does actually go into that process. Yeah. Okay, th th thank you, Keith. You, you mentioned buying um, or adding to London Stock Exchange uh, at a pretty attractive valuation last year. No, no, the no, the well, shares have been. Oh, 2018. Sorry, um, uh, my, my, my mistake there. Um, the, the shares have been, been struggling a bit more recently. There's, there's been this big acquisition of uh, Refinitiv, if I recall correctly. Um, how, what's the outlook like there? I think the problem with the refinitive acquisition is that um, it's probably not turned out to be quite what they thought it was. I think it had more difficulties there. And they're certainly talking about it costing an awful lot more money than we've been led to believe and taking longer uh, to integrate. So that, I think, is the reason why, you know, the sort of the, the gloss came off a bit um, on the last, last statements from them. Uh, my own feeling is they... There's one or two other things, you know, they, they did gear up very heavily uh, instead of having maybe a, a, an equity issue to part finance it. And they, they did it before they'd sold Borsa Italiana, which, of course, they've now done that. That's gone through. Uh, so I think there were one or two things there. And now we've had this whole question about uh, Schwimmer's 
remuneration and, and you know, the increase before we've seen the results of, of, of the integration of, of Refinitiv. So I think there's an awful lot of good reasons why the shares have come off what was a pretty full valuation at, at you know, £90 plus. I mean, it really was it was priced into perfection at that level. So it doesn't surprise me that they've come off, you know, down to down to more like the seventy pounds level. I mean, I've got to say we were buying in at forty to fifty when when we did when we had that market thump. So it's not something that particularly concerns yeah. me. Uh, and we'll just stay with it. Uh, it's a different business now, of course. I mean, it, it was once a trophy asset, you know, the London Stock Exchange. It's not that anymore. It's it's trying to become more of a a, a data business and we like data businesses we fundamentally like data businesses subscription models uh, you know high retention rates that's the sort of business that we, we really do like so it's got a lot it's yeah. got a lot to attract me but it, it's also it's got something to prove now okay Th- thank thank you uh, see- seeing as i've i've picked out a few uh, 20 baggers uh, already it's probably important to highlight that the process doesn't always work quite so uh, perfectly uh, provident financial uh, saw a bit of a blow up recently uh, and you you sold that stock in march when it when it was heavily down uh, the company faced a lot of complaints about its its doorstop lending condition which which has just announced it will close i believe do you, do you, do you have any regrets there or or, or is that kind of that kind of thing, just that that sort of setback sometimes crops up. Oh, there's the right old story here with Provident Financial. Um, we, yeah. we were in that from early days, and we actually sold out when when they when they tripped up over their new operating structure and, and what they were trying to do with the business. Uh, you probably recall that the shares the shares fell from a high of over thirty pounds down to about five pounds. Uh, we actually sold out ahead of that because I thought I thought the whole rationale, the costs were spiralling. Um, I, I actually thought the business was just beginning to unravel, fray at the seams. And we sold out at prices between 20 and £21, actually just above £21. Uh, and then... You know, it looked like, what a clever boy am I? It looked like for a while, uh, as, as the shares <laughs> tumbled down to, to, to you know twenty five percent of that level. But what then happened was Chris Gillespie, who run the home collected credit business with with a plum, I might add, for many years, he came back in to sort it out. Uh, this was after after Peter Crook had, had uh, been taken outside and shot. Um, so he came back in, and I thought, yeah, he'll get this sorted because he knows this business inside out. So that was my, my theory about why I went back in. And I actually re-entered at around about £5, thinking, yeah, it could be dead money for a year or two. But, you know, we should be all right with this one. It's been around since 1880. I, I've personally known it since the 90s. Uh, I get it wrong. Yeah. <laughs> you know, when you saw that trading statement in March, I mean, it was absolutely peppered with things to uh, to, to give you concern. And I just thought, yeah, you know, you what, you've got it wrong. You were clever the first time. You've been pretty dumb the second time. So I cleared it out and just hands up. <laughs> got it wrong. <laughs> okay, thank th- thank you, Keith. Uh, to, to, to slightly change tack, uh, last autumn you, you tried to launch a, a UK Buffetology Investment Trust. 
uh, which didn't quite raise enough money to, to get off the ground. W was that a big disappointment at the time? And do you still have ambitions to launch an investment trust in the future? Let's take the latter part first. Yes, it's sat in a drawer not to be revisited uh, when signs are right. Yeah. What, what happened was we were getting a fantastic reception when we started off, when we started off on the marketing. And I thought we were going, we were going to knock 100 million into a cocked hat. I really did. Um, so mm. we, we, we were really building, building a, a head of steam, getting a lot of traction. Um, it was clearly a product that the market wanted. And that's why we'd launched it in the first place, because people were coming to us telling us that that's what, what they wanted. Um, what happened? I'll tell you what happened. On October the 12th, Boris Johnson opened his mouth about a lockdown. And on October the 13th, the day after, we saw interest waning, or rather our, our marketers saw interest waning. Um, right. And then it got worse. It got worse because Boris Johnson started arguing with his Red Wall MPs and some of the elected mayors up here in the north uh, the whole thing started to turn a little bit sour and we actually saw orders pulled from the book. So the last two weeks of the marketing period coincided with us having been tripped up politically. Uh, it's, it's pure and simple. That's what it was. It was it was lockdown and its impact on confidence. And I remember thinking at the time, I wish to God politicians would think before they opened their mouths because if we were seeing that, my guess was it was happening throughout the economy and it was likely to be having a bad effect you know, on the real economy. So that's what happened yes. with it. We've had a lot of people come back to us saying, are you going to revisit it? You know, we really think there's a place for a product like this for closed-ended small, small cap businesses where you, know, you can bring your expertise to bear. The answer is yes, but we've just got to get it right. You know, it's not just the cost sinking a lot of cost into a product that never saw the light of day or never got off the ground, do a better analogy. Uh, but it's also reputational. You can't, you can't fail twice to get it away. So we've got to be absolutely sure. And there's an awful lot going on in, in, in the business at the moment that, uh, you know, we don't, we don't judge the time. is just not quite right at the moment. Okay. Well, perhaps it sounds like a case of uh, watch, watch this space then. Very much. Um, and uh, well, perhaps that's a good point to to wrap things up. Uh, so, Keith, thank, thank, just to say thanks very much again for for joining me. It was a real pleasure to to talk to you again, and uh, very interesting to get a kind of deep dive on your on your approach. Thanks, Jeremy. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. And uh, I suppose the final thing to add is uh, th thank you very much again for listening today, and please join us again soon for more Funds Fanatic Show podcasts. 